When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America Oral Argument When the court grants a cert petition, the case is set for oral argument. Both parties will file briefs on the merits of the case, as distinct from the reasons they may have argued for granting or denying the cert petition. With the consent of the parties or approval of the court, amici curiae, or friends of the court, may also file briefs. The court holds two-week oral argument sessions each month from October through April. Each side has 30 minutes to present its argument, the court may choose to give more time, though this is rare, and during that time, the justices may interrupt the advocate and ask questions. The petitioner gives the first presentation, and may reserve some time to rebut the respondent's arguments after the respondent has concluded. Amici Curie may also present oral argument on behalf of one party if that party agrees. The court advises counsel to assume that the justices are familiar with and have read the briefs filed in a case. Supreme Court Bar In order to plead before the court, an attorney must first be admitted to the court's bar. Approximately 4,000 lawyers join the bar each year. The bar contains an estimated 230,000 members. In reality, pleading is limited to several hundred attorneys. The rest join for a one-time fee of $200, earning the court about $750,000 annually. Attorneys can be admitted as either individuals or as groups. The group admission is held before the current justices of the Supreme Court, wherein the Chief Justice approves a motion to admit the new attorneys. Lawyers commonly apply for the cosmetic value of a certificate to display in their office or on their resume. They also receive access to better seating if they wish to attend an oral argument. Members of the Supreme Court Bar are also granted access to the collections of the Supreme Court Library. Decision At the conclusion of oral argument, the case is submitted for decision. Cases are decided by majority vote of the justices. It is the court's practice to issue decisions in all cases argued in a particular term by the end of that term. Within that term, however, the court is under no obligation to release a decision within any set time after oral argument. After the oral argument is concluded, usually in the same week as the case was submitted, the justices retire to another conference at which the preliminary votes are tallied and the court sees which side has prevailed. One of the justices in the majority is then assigned to write the court's opinion, also known as the majority opinion. This assignment is made by the most senior justice in the majority, with the chief justice always being considered the most senior. Drafts of the court's opinion circulate among the justices until the court is prepared to announce the judgment in a particular case. Justices are free to change their votes on a case up until the decision is finalized and published. In any given case, a justice is free to choose whether or not to author an opinion or else simply join the majority or another justice's opinion. There are several primary types of opinions. Opinion of the court, this is the binding decision of the Supreme Court. An opinion that more than half of the justices join, usually at least five justices, since there are nine justices in total, but in cases where some justices do not participate it could be fewer, is known as majority opinion and creates binding precedent in American law. Whereas an opinion that fewer than half of the justices join is known as a plurality opinion and is only partially binding precedent. Concurring, when a justice concurs, 
he or she agrees with and joins the majority opinion but authors a separate concurrence to give additional explanations, rationales, or commentary. Concurrences do not create binding precedent. Concurring in the judgment, when a justice concurs in the judgment, he or she agrees with the outcome the court reached but disagrees with its reasons for doing so. A justice in this situation does not join the majority opinion. Like regular concurrences, these do not create binding precedent. Dissent A dissenting justice disagrees with the outcome the court reached and its reasoning. Justices who dissent from a decision may author their own dissenting opinions or, if there are multiple dissenting justices in a decision, may join another justice's dissent. Dissents do not create binding precedent. A justices may also join only parts of a particular decision, and may even agree with some parts of the outcome and disagree with others. Since recording devices are banned inside the courtroom of the Supreme Court building, the delivery of the decision to the media is done via paper copies and is known as the running of the interns. It is possible that, through recusals or vacancies, the court divides evenly on the case. If that occurs, then the decision of the court below is affirmed, but does not establish binding precedent. In effect, it results in a return to the status quo ante. For a case to be heard, there must be a quorum of at least six justices. If a quorum is not available to hear a case and a majority of qualified justices believes that the case cannot be heard and determined in the next term, then the judgment of the court below is affirmed as if the court had been evenly divided. For cases brought to the Supreme Court by direct appeal from a United States District Court, the Chief Justice may order the case remanded to the appropriate U.S. Court of Appeals for a final decision there. This has only occurred once in U.S. history, in the case of United States v. Alcoa, 1945 published opinions. The court's opinions are published in three stages. First, a slip opinion is made available on the court's website and through other outlets. Next, several opinions and lists of the court's orders are bound together in paperback form, called the Preliminary Print of United States Reports, the official series of books in which the final version of the court's opinions appears. About a year after the preliminary prints are issued, a final bound volume of U.S. reports is issued. The individual volumes of U.S. reports are numbered so that users may cite this set of reports, or a competing version published by another commercial legal publisher but containing parallel citations, to allow those who read their pleadings and other briefs to find the cases quickly and easily. As of January 2019, there are Final bound volumes of U.S. reports, 569 volumes, covering cases through June 13, 2013, part of the October 2012 term. Slip Opinions, 21 Volumes, 565-585 to for 2011-2017 to Terms, 3 two-part volumes each, plus Part 1 of Volume 586, 2018 Term. As of March 2012, the U.S. reports have published a total of 30,161 Supreme Court opinions, covering the decisions handed down from February 1790 to March 2012. This figure does not reflect the number of cases the court has taken up, as several cases can be addressed by a single opinion, see, for example, Parents v. Seattle, where Meredith v. Jefferson County Board of Education was also decided in the same opinion, by a similar logic, Miranda v. Arizona actually decided not only Miranda but also three other cases, Venera v. New York, Westover v. United States, and California v. Stewart. A more unusual example is the telephone cases, which are a single set of interlinked opinions that take up the entire 126th volume of the U.S. reports. Opinions are also collected and published in two unofficial, parallel reporters, Supreme Court Reporter, published by West, 
now a part of Thomson Reuters, and United States Supreme Court Reports, Lawyers Edition, simply known as Lawyers Edition, published by LexisNexis. In court documents, legal periodicals and other legal media, case citations generally contain cites from each of the three reporters, for example, Citation to Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission is presented as Citizens United v. Federal Election Common, 2010, with Supreme Court representing the Supreme Court Reporter, and L. Ed. representing the Lawyer's Edition. Citations to Published Opinions Lawyers use an abbreviated format to cite cases, in the form volume U.S. page, pin, year, where volume is the volume number, page is the page number on which the opinion begins, and year is the year in which the case was decided. Optionally, PIN is used to pinpoint to a specific page number within the opinion. For instance, the citation for Roe v. Wade is, 1973, which means the case was decided in 1973 and appears on page 113 of volume 410 of U.S. Reports. For opinions or orders that have not yet been published in the preliminary print, the volume and page numbers may be replaced with a blank. Institutional Powers and Constraints the federal court system and the judicial authority to interpret the Constitution received little attention in the debates over the drafting and ratification of the Constitution. The power of judicial review, in fact, is nowhere mentioned in it. Over the ensuing years, the question of whether the power of judicial review was even intended by the drafters of the Constitution was quickly frustrated by the lack of evidence bearing on the question either way. Nevertheless, the power of the judiciary to overturn laws and executive actions it determines are unlawful or unconstitutional is a well-established precedent. Many of the founding fathers accepted the notion of judicial review, in Federalist No. 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote, a constitution is, in fact, and must be regarded by the judges, as a fundamental law. It therefore belongs to them to ascertain its meaning, as well as the meaning of any particular act proceeding from the legislative body. If there should happen to be an irreconcilable variance between the two, that which has the superior obligation and validity ought, of course, to be preferred, or, in other words, the Constitution ought to be preferred to the statute. The Supreme Court firmly established its power to declare laws unconstitutional in Marbury v. Madison, 1803, consummating the American system of checks and balances. In explaining the power of judicial review, Chief Justice John Marshall stated that the authority to interpret the law was the particular province of the courts, part of the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. His contention was not that the court had privileged insight into constitutional requirements, but that it was the constitutional duty of the judiciary, as well as the other branches of government, to read and obey the dictates of the Constitution. Since the founding of the Republic, there has been a tension between the practice of judicial review and the democratic ideals of egalitarianism self-government, self-determination and freedom of conscience. At one pole are those who view the federal judiciary and especially the Supreme Court as being the most separated and least checked of all branches of government. Indeed, federal judges and justices on the Supreme Court are not required to stand for election by virtue of their tenure during good behavior, and their pay may not be diminished while they hold their position, Section 1 of Article 3. Though subject to the process of impeachment, only one justice has ever been impeached and no Supreme Court justice has been removed from office. At the other pole are those who view the judiciary as the least dangerous branch, with little ability to resist the exhortations of the other branches of government. The Supreme Court, it is noted, cannot directly enforce its rulings, instead, it relies on respect for the Constitution and for the law for adherence to its judgments. One notable instance of non-acquiescence came in 1832 
when the state of Georgia ignored the Supreme Court's decision in Worcester v. Georgia. President Andrew Jackson, who sided with the Georgia courts, is supposed to have remarked, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it, however, this alleged quotation has been disputed. Some state governments in the South also resisted the desegregation of public schools after the 1954 judgment Brown v. Board of Education. More recently, many feared that President Nixon would refuse to comply with the court's order in United States v. Nixon, 1974, to surrender the Watergate tapes. Nixon, however, ultimately complied with the Supreme Court's ruling. Supreme Court decisions can be, and have been, purposefully overturned by constitutional amendment which has happened on five occasions. Chisholm v. Georgia, 1793, overturned by the 11th Amendment, 1795. Dred Scott v. Sandford, 1857, overturned by the 13th Amendment, 1865, and the 14th Amendment, 1868. Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, 1895, overturned by the 16th Amendment, 1913. Minor v. Happersett, 1875 overturned by the 19th Amendment, 1920. Oregon v. Mitchell, 1970, overturned by the 26th Amendment, 1971. When the court rules on matters involving the interpretation of laws rather than of the Constitution, simple legislative action can reverse the decisions, for example, in 2009 Congress passed the Lilly Ledbetter Act, superseding the limitations given in Ledbetter v. Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company in 2007. Also, the Supreme Court is not immune from political and institutional consideration, lower federal courts and state courts sometimes resist doctrinal innovations, as do law enforcement officials. In addition, the other two branches can restrain the court through other mechanisms. Congress can increase the number of justices, giving the president power to influence future decisions by appointments, as in Roosevelt's court packing plan discussed above. Congress can pass legislation that restricts the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and other federal courts over certain topics and cases, this is suggested by language in Section 2 of Article 3, where the appellate jurisdiction is granted with such exceptions, and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. The court sanctioned such congressional action in the Reconstruction case ex parte McCardell, 1869, though it rejected Congress' power to dictate how particular cases must be decided in United States v. Klein, 1871. On the other hand, through its power of judicial review, the Supreme Court has defined the scope and nature of the powers and separation between the legislative and executive branches of the federal government, for example, in United States v. Curtis Wright Export Corporation, 1936, Dames and Moore v. Regan, 1981, and notably in Goldwater v. Carter. 1979, where it effectively gave the presidency the power to terminate ratified treaties without the consent of Congress. The court's decisions can also impose limitations on the scope of executive authority, as in Humphrey's Executor v. United States, 1935, the Steel Seizure Case, 1952, and United States v. Nixon, 1974. Law Clerks Each Supreme Court justice hires several law clerks to review petitions for writ of certiorari, research them prepare bench memorandums, and draft opinions. Associate justices are allowed four clerks. The chief justice is allowed five clerks, but Chief Justice Rehnquist hires only three per year, and Chief Justice Roberts usually hires only four. Generally, law clerks serve a term of one to two years. The first law clerk was hired by Associate Justice Horace Gray in 1882. 
Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Louis Brandeis were the first Supreme Court justices to use recent law school graduates as clerks, rather than hiring a stenographer secretary. Most law clerks are recent law school graduates. The first female clerk was Lysia Lohman, hired in 1944 by Justice William O. Douglas. The first African-American, William T. Coleman Jr., was hired in 1948 by Justice Felix Frankfurter. A disproportionately large number of law clerks have obtained law degrees from elite law schools, especially Harvard, Yale, the University of Chicago, Columbia, and Stanford. From 1882 to 1940, 62% of law clerks were graduates of Harvard Law School. Those chosen to be Supreme Court law clerks usually have graduated in the top of their law school class and were often an editor of the Law Review or a member of the Moot Court Board. By the mid-1970s, clerking previously for a judge in a federal court of appeals had also become a prerequisite to clerking for a Supreme Court justice. Nine Supreme Court justices previously clerked for other justices, Byron White for Frederick M. Vinson. John Paul Stevens for Wiley Rutledge, William Rehnquist for Robert H. Jackson, Stephen Breyer for Arthur Goldberg, John Roberts for William Rehnquist, Elena Kagan for Thurgood Marshall, Neil Gorsuch for both Byron White and Anthony Kennedy, Brett Kavanaugh also for Kennedy, and Amy Coney Barrett for Antonin Scalia. Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh served under Kennedy during the same term. Gorsuch is the first justice to serve alongside a justice for whom he or she clerked serving alongside Kennedy from April 2017 through Kennedy's retirement in 2018. With the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh, for the first time a majority of the Supreme Court was composed of former Supreme Court law clerks, Roberts, Breyer, Kagan, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, now joined by Barrett. Several current Supreme Court justices have also clerked in the Federal Courts of Appeals, John Roberts for Judge Henry Friendly of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, Justice Samuel Alito for Judge Leonard I. Garth of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, Elena Kagan for Judge Abner J. McVeigh of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, Neil Gorsuch for Judge David B. Santel of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, Brett Kavanaugh for Judge Walter Stapleton of the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit and Judge Alex Kaczynski of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and Amy Coney Barrett for Judge Lawrence Silberman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Politicization of the Court Clerks hired by each of the justices of the Supreme Court are often given considerable leeway in the opinions they draft. Supreme Court clerkship appeared to be a nonpartisan institution from the 1940s into the 1980s, according to a study published in 2009 by the Law Review of Vanderbilt University Law School. As law has moved closer to mere politics, political affiliations have naturally and predictably become proxies for the different political agendas that have been pressed in and through the courts, former Federal Court of Appeals Judge J. Michael Loddick said. David J. Garrow, professor of history at the University of Cambridge stated that the court had thus begun to mirror the political branches of government. We are getting a composition of the clerk workforce that is getting to be like the House of Representatives, Professor Garrow said. Each side is putting forward only ideological purists. According to the Vanderbilt Law Review study, this politicized hiring trend reinforces the impression that the Supreme Court is a super-legislature responding to ideological arguments rather than a legal institution responding to concerns grounded in the rule of law. A poll conducted in June 2012 by the New York Times and CBS News showed just 44% of Americans approve of the job the Supreme Court is doing. 
three quarters said justices' decisions are sometimes influenced by their political or personal views. Criticism The Supreme Court has been the object of criticisms on a range of issues. Among them, judicial activism. The Supreme Court has been criticized for not keeping within constitutional bounds by engaging in judicial activism, rather than merely interpreting law and exercising judicial restraint. Claims of judicial activism are not confined to any particular ideology. An often cited example of conservative judicial activism is the 1905 decision in Lochner v. New York, which has been criticized by many prominent thinkers, including Robert Bork, Justice Antonin Scalia, and Chief Justice John Roberts, and which was reversed in the 1930s. An often cited example of liberal judicial activism is Roe v. Wade, 1973 which legalized abortion on the basis of the right to privacy inferred from the 14th Amendment, a reasoning that some critics argued was circuitous. Legal scholars, justices, and presidential candidates have criticized the Roe decision. The progressive Brown v. Board of Education decision banning racial segregation in public schools has been criticized by conservatives such as Patrick Buchanan, former Associate Justice nominee and Solicitor General Robert Bork and former presidential contender Barry Goldwater. More recently, Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission was criticized for expanding upon the precedent in First National Bank of Boston v. Balotti, 1978, that the First Amendment applies to corporations, including campaign spending. President Abraham Lincoln warned, referring to the Dred Scott decision, that if government policy became irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. Former Justice Thurgood Marshall justified judicial activism with these words, You do what you think is right and let the law catch up. During different historical periods, the court has leaned in different directions. Critics from both sides complain that activist judges abandon the Constitution and substitute their own views instead. Critics include writers such as Andrew Napolitano, Phyllis Schlafly, Mark R. Levin, Mark I. Sutherland, and James McGregor Burns. Past presidents from both parties have attacked judicial activism, including Franklin D. Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, and Ronald Reagan. Failed Supreme Court nominee Robert Bork wrote, What judges have wrought is a coup d'etat, slow-moving and genteel, but a coup d'etat nonetheless. Brian Leiter wrote that given the complexity of the law and the complexity involved in saying what really happened in a given dispute, all judges, and especially those on the Supreme Court, often have to exercise a quasi-legislative power and Supreme Court nominations are controversial because the court is a super-legislature, and because its moral and political judgments are controversial. Individual Rights Court decisions have been criticized for failing to protect individual rights. The Dred Scott, 1857, decision upheld slavery, Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, upheld segregation under the doctrine of separate but equal, Callow v. City of New London, 2005 was criticized by prominent politicians, including New Jersey Governor John Corzini, as undermining property rights. Some critics suggest the 2009 bench with a conservative majority has become increasingly hostile to voters by siding with Indiana's voter identification laws which tend to disenfranchise large numbers of people without driver's licenses, especially poor and minority voters, according to one report. Senator Al Franken criticized the court for eroding individual rights. However, Others argue that the court is too protective of some individual rights, particularly those of people accused of crimes or in detention. For example, 
Chief Justice Warren Burger was an outspoken critic of the exclusionary rule, and Justice Scalia criticized the court's decision in Boumediene v. Bush for being too protective of the rights of Guantanamo detainees, on the grounds that habeas corpus was limited to sovereign territory. Power excess. This criticism is related to complaints about judicial activism. George Will wrote that the court has an increasingly central role in American governance. It was criticized for intervening in bankruptcy proceedings regarding ailing carmaker Chrysler Corporation in 2009. A reporter wrote that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's intervention in the Chrysler bankruptcy left open the possibility of further judicial review but argued overall that the intervention was a proper use of Supreme Court power to check the executive branch. Warren E. Berger, before becoming Chief Justice, argued that since the Supreme Court has such unreviewable power it is likely to self-indulge itself and unlikely to engage in dispassionate analysis. Larry Sabato wrote excessive authority has accrued to the federal courts, especially the Supreme Court. Courts are a poor check on executive power. British constitutional scholar Adam Tompkins sees flaws in the American system of having courts, and specifically the Supreme Court, act as checks on the executive and legislative branches, he argues that because the courts must wait sometimes for years, for cases to navigate their way through the system, their ability to restrain other branches is severely weakened. In contrast, various other countries have a dedicated constitutional court that has original jurisdiction on constitutional claims brought by persons or political institutions, for example, the Federal Constitutional Court of Germany, which can declare a law unconstitutional when challenged. Federal versus State Power there has been debate throughout American history about the boundary between federal and state power. While framers such as James Madison and Alexander Hamilton argued in the Federalist Papers that their then-proposed constitution would not infringe on the power of state governments, others argue that expansive federal power is good and consistent with the framers' wishes. The Tenth Amendment to the United States Constitution explicitly grants powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. The court has been criticized for giving the federal government too much power to interfere with state authority. One criticism is that it has allowed the federal government to misuse the Commerce Clause by upholding regulations and legislation which have little to do with interstate commerce, but that were enacted under the guise of regulating interstate commerce, and by voiding state legislation for allegedly interfering with interstate commerce. For example, the Commerce Clause was used by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to uphold the Endangered Species Act, thus protecting six endemic species of insect near Austin, Texas, despite the fact that the insects had no commercial value and did not travel across state lines. The Supreme Court let that ruling stand without comment in 2005. Chief Justice John Marshall asserted Congress's power over interstate commerce was complete in itself, may be exercised to its utmost extent, and acknowledges no limitations other than are prescribed in the Constitution. Justice Alito said congressional authority under the Commerce Clause is quite broad. Modern-day theorist Robert B. Reich suggests debate over the Commerce Clause continues today. Advocates of states' rights such as constitutional scholar Kevin Gutzman have also criticized the court, saying it has misused the 14th Amendment to undermine state authority. Justice Brandeis, in arguing for allowing the states to operate without federal interference, suggested that states should be laboratories of democracy. One critic wrote the great majority of Supreme Court rulings of unconstitutionality involve state, not federal, law. However, others see the 14th Amendment as a positive force that extends protection of those rights and guarantees to the state level. More recently, the issue of federal power is central in the prosecution of Gamble v. United States, 
which is examining the doctrine of separate sovereigns, whereby a criminal defendant can be prosecuted by a state court and then by a federal court. Secretive Proceedings The court has been criticized for keeping its deliberations hidden from public view. According to a review of Jeffrey Tubin's 2007 Expose the Nine, inside the secret world of the Supreme Court, its inner workings are difficult for reporters to cover, like a closed cartel, only revealing itself through public events and printed releases, with nothing about its inner workings. The reviewer writes, few, reporters, dig deeply into court affairs. It all works very neatly, the only ones hurt are the American people, who know little about nine individuals with enormous power over their lives. Larry Sabato complains about the court's insularity. A fairly Dickinson University poll conducted in 2010 found that 61% of American voters agreed that televising court hearings would be good for a democracy, and 50% of voters stated they would watch court proceedings if they were televised. More recently, several justices have appeared on television, written books and made public statements to journalists. In a 2009 interview on C-SPAN, journalists Joan Biskupic, of USA Today, and Lyle Denniston, of Scottus Blog, argued that the court is a very open institution with only the justices' private conferences inaccessible to others. In October 2010, the court began the practice of posting on its website recordings and transcripts of oral arguments on the Friday after they occur. Judicial Interference in Political Disputes Some court decisions have been criticized for injecting the court into the political arena, and deciding questions that are the purview of the other two branches of government. The Bush v. Gore decision, in which the Supreme Court intervened in the 2000 presidential election and effectively chose George W. Bush over Al Gore, has been criticized extensively, particularly by liberals. Another example are court decisions on apportionment and redistricting, in Baker v. Carr, the court decided it could rule on apportionment questions, just as Frankfurter in a scathing dissent argued against the court wading into so-called political questions. Not choosing enough cases to review. Senator Arl Inspector said the court should decide more cases. On the other hand, although Justice Scalia acknowledged in a 2009 interview that the number of cases that the court heard then was smaller than when he first joined the Supreme Court, he also stated that he had not changed his standards for deciding whether to review a case, nor did he believe his colleagues had changed their standards. He attributed the high volume of cases in the late 1980s, at least in part, to an earlier flurry of new federal legislation that was making its way through the courts. Lifetime tenure. Critic Larry Sabato wrote, the insularity of lifetime tenure, combined with the appointments of relatively young attorneys who give long service on the bench, produces senior judges representing the views of past generations better than views of the current day. Sanford Levinson has been critical of justices who stayed in office despite medical deterioration based on longevity. James McGregor Burns stated lifelong tenure has produced a critical time lag with the Supreme Court institutionally almost always behind the times. Proposals to solve these problems include term limits for justices, as proposed by Levinson and Sabato as well as a mandatory retirement age proposed by Richard Epstein, among others. However, others suggest lifetime tenure brings substantial benefits, such as impartiality and freedom from political pressure. Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78 wrote nothing can contribute so much to its firmness and independence as permanency in office. Accepting gifts and outside income. The 21st century has seen increased scrutiny of justices accepting expensive gifts and travel. All of the members of the Roberts Court have accepted travel or gifts. In 2012, Justice Sonia Sotomayor received $1.9 million in advances from her publisher Knopf Doubleday. J. 
just as Scalia and others took dozens of expensive trips to exotic locations paid for by private donors. Private events sponsored by partisan groups that are attended by both the justices and those who have an interest in their decisions have raised concerns about access and inappropriate communications. Stephen Spaulding, the legal director at Common Cause, said, There are fair questions raised by some of these trips about their commitment to being impartial. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. (laughs) 